Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. There's a huge question looming over collectors and museums right now. What do you do about the historical underrepresentation of disadvantaged groups? In recent years, we've seen a huge proliferation of interest and investment, but some of the fundamental moral and historical and economic questions are still vexing. It's one thing to say you want to do more to support these long-ignored fields of study and collecting, but it's another to grapple with the actual trade-offs, the costs, and the often unpleasant realities that brought us here in the first place. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to organize a talk for the Winter Show at the Park Avenue Armory, and I thought this would be a good moment to take the bull by the horns, and if not definitively resolve those questions, at least ask them in a serious way. And I was thrilled to be joined for this by a collector and a curator who have two of the most insightful and innovative voices on these topics. That's Jeremy Simeon and Jesse Erickson. And we recorded the conversation, um, and I'm really glad to be able to share it with you now. I hope you find it as thought-provoking as I did. As always, you can reach me on Instagram at Objective Interest or via email at CuriousObjectsPodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support Curious Objects, but you don't have much time, you can just open the app you're using right now to listen to this and leave a rating or even write out a quick review. It's a small thing, but it really helps convince the algorithms to show these episodes to more listeners. And I'm really grateful to those of you who have taken a moment to do it. I, I want to start by just quickly situating ourselves. Um, we're here at the Winter Show, which... Of course, uh, you know, 20 years ago, you would have seen pretty much, you know, 18th century furniture and, and paintings and, and sculpture here. Uh, now the scope of the material on view at the fair is dramatically broader. Um, but, you know, at the same time, this is still the Marquis American uh, Fair, the Marquis American exhibition of traditional material that we all still treasure and, and, and love. Um, but, you know, it's clear that things are different now. Collectors are paying attention to works that come from places and that were made by people that were previously easy to ignore by default. And scholars are turning over stones that have been right under our feet for a long time, but we're finally starting to see the undersides of them. Uh, and you know, even the contemporary art world is, is making great strides uh, toward greater inclusivity. And that is all very exciting and encouraging. Um, but it also is raising a host of questions and challenges uh, about how to approach these new categories of material and how to reconsider the traditional material that we still cherish. Um, so we're talking today about collecting outside the lines, um, the lines of traditional Anglo-European material. Um, and I'm just thrilled to be joined by these two uh, gentlemen who, um, you know, they've both been pushing these lines uh, through their, their world-class research, their connoisseurship, um, but also their deep thinking about uh, culture and, and history. Um, I want to start just by uh, helping the audience to get to know the two of you a little bit better and uh, hear a little bit about, about your interests, your uh, research, your projects. Maybe you could in a, just a moment, um, give a brief introduction to your area of focus and maybe tease us with something that you're working on uh, at the moment. Um, 
Sure. So my name is Jeremy Simeon. I'm from Louisiana. And my area of focus would really be 19th century portraiture. But every now and then I also get into 18th century portraiture. And uh, more specialized still, depictions of people of African descent, which is quite rare in portraiture. You may have looked around the show, and you're not going to see many examples of that. It's a needle in a haystack. Been through a lot of haystacks. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, I've had quite a bit of success in finding this African presence in portraiture. And uh, because I am New Orleans-centric and Louisiana-centric, my focus has been on Louisiana, but also the greater what I call Creole or Caribbean world. So these colonies where we see the African presence there. And I've had some great success at finding some phenomenal paintings, some hidden stories, and occasionally some hidden sitters that were, well, buried beneath additional pigment. And uh, currently right now I'm working on an 18th century French colonial painting of two sitters. One is an aristocrat, the other is a lady of color. We do not know her status and we don't know her position, but we know she's looking right at the viewer and says, you need to know my position and my status. And so I'm fighting very hard to try to demystify that, and I'm hoping we can get that done. So. Now about you, Jesse. Yeah, uh, Jesse Erickson at the um, Morgan Library Museum, where I'm the Aston Curator and Department Head of, of Printed Books and Bindings. Um, my research is centered in a sort of nascent methodology called ethnobibliography. And ethnobibliography, as I have developed it, uh, it was originally conceived by a, another bibliographer and cataloger named Hugh Amory um, back in the 90s. Uh, but my, my sort of um, development of this methodology uh, has, it, has advanced it in a way where I'm looking at the intersection of the social construction of racial and ethnic identity and the book as a material object. So I'm really interested in the ways that typography and layout and binding and illustration and all the various components of the book as a material text speak to the ways in which uh, we construct racial identity. Um, I started sort of um, expanding and exploring this methodology, uh, in my, well actually prior to my dissertation work, but my dissertation work um, was uh, focused on analyzing black literacy practices in special collections libraries using ethnobibliography as that methodology as a lens by which we can understand the nuances of the ways that black Americans interact with the book. Uh, since then, uh, I've developed uh, a deep passion for Victorian popular fiction um, through my own personal engagement with a Victorian period author named Wida. So I've now directed uh, that, that same methodology uh, to the analysis of her literary corpus and um, looking at uh, various instantiations of um, additions coming uh, out of different regions and uh, different languages and looking at the ways that that speaks to particular ethnic construction and ethnic identities uh, within the, the communities of reader, readership uh, that's uh, situated in those areas. Yeah, thanks. Um, and, you know, I just, <laughs> I think I want to start off by asking what the hell is happening? Because over the last three years we've seen this absolute explosion of interest um, in underrepresented artists, underrepresented areas of art and decorative arts, 
particularly since 2020 and George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests. And, you know, I've seen retail prices for works by uh, black makers increase by a factor of 10 or 20 or 50 or more. Um, I mean, is this, is this just society finally recognizing the true value of these pieces? Um, or, you know, to what extent is this a new fashion or a fad that's inevitably going to pass? Um, I mean, is this, is this more like a trend line that is just going to keep rising? Um, and, and who is, and whose money is really driving that trend? Well, I have to begin on this one? I mean, that's a lot going on there. It's a complicated issue. Uh, or is it an issue at all? Well, I mean, I guess that's a matter of perspective, right? So some people would look at this and say, well, this is obviously a solution. This is an acknowledgement of a marginalized people finally having their day. But is it just a day? Or is it a week or a month? And I think some people could get very nervous thinking about that. But for someone like myself who's been collecting this for 10 years, not that long, but long enough to leave a mark, uh, I don't concern myself with questions like that. Um, because it's one to be a hipster. I liked it before it was cool. <laughs> and uh, I don't worry about if tomorrow they no longer recognize the importance of the African presence or this material culture. Sure, it's concerning on some level, but I don't worry about it. Where's the money coming from? Well, it seems like it's coming from the heavens because it's pouring down, my God, like the rain earlier today. It's coming from everywhere. Um, I think it's an apology, a recognition. I think we had this pressure cooker of social injustice broadcast in 4K, sometimes 6K, or sometimes just 720 on YouTube see these things happening with George Floyd and other black people um, and struggle, we'll leave that struggle. And so maybe it's an apology, maybe it's a spotlight, um, I can tell you it's warm and it's refreshing because it's so cold um, for the years leading up to this moment. Um, and I'm optimistic it'll continue, but I don't really want to speculate too much on where the money's coming from because again, as a as a person who's passionate about this, I, I can't get into those sort of things. It'll affect my ability mm -hmm. to persevere and continue on and tell these stories. I, you know, I love this question because it, it is a can of worms, right? Um, so, I mean, I would love to think of it as an arc, but I, it's, perhaps it's more of a pendulum. And, um, you know, Black folks have been collecting our own history, you know, for, for generations. You, know, you just gotta go to Schomburg, uh, in my neighborhood, to, uh, to see uh, how we can attest to that. Um, but this, you know, this resonates with me on a personal level because, number one, it, it is part of my own raison d'etre for how I approach the field at large, right? And the question that that I'm always trying to address the question that, that keeps me up at night and that I get up for in the morning is, you know, how do we make this field more inclusive? How do we make this field more diverse long term, right? And a lot, you know, I, this was my question going into it, you know, more than 15 years ago. And more than 15 years ago, this 
wasn't a question for the field at large, right? Mm -hmm. So I've seen, I've watched this blossom, um, these conversations sort of um, come to the fore, especially since 2020, uh, although the pendulum has swung back a little bit uh, since then. Um, kind of giving me whiplash a little bit. Uh, but, you know, closer to a decade ago, people started recognizing, oh, we need to do better with hiring people of color into libraries, galleries, museums, into the art world, into memory fields. Uh, but that, you know, that's not really a, a panacea, right? And so this moment, I think it's a combination of, it's definitely multifactorial in that on the one hand, you have academia recognizing, okay, there's a, there's a clear need here because the curriculum's changing. Curriculum's changing, right? And so how do special collections, libraries, um, collectors of culture represent those changing trends within the communities of scholarship, right? That's when I sort of started to really observe a shift happening. Um, so th that's, the, that's the next level. Right, so there's a, there's the demand, and that create demand is it sort of creates a, a financial incentive, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of uh, vendors are you know have um, institutional uh, clientele, so so there's that aspect. But on the other side, it becomes sort of a double-edged sword, in my opinion, because at least in my experience, um, you start to get into the more complicated aspects. When you look at it in a holistic lens, you have a community of donors, right? You have your trustees, your board members, right? Um, these are the individuals and folks that set up endowed funds for collection development, right? So if there's resistance there, there's a roadblock, okay? And then you have the vendors themselves. And this is where it gets really problematic, all right? Um, because when you're profiting off of Black history, right? And and it's it's so bizarre because I mean it's nice to say it's surreal for me as a as a black person who grew up um, sort of hip hop generation. I have looked at rare book catalogs that have materials that I would look at and say, oh, you know, that's just you know so and so from down the block, you know, a yearbook or a, a photo album of pictures of people that you know I would very much identify, and I don't understand how now that is now worth you know, $5,000, $6,000, But then I, I see it in my own family, right? I, I've experienced this in that my, my, um, my wife, her, her, uh, her late great-grandmother was a woman named Jessie Mae Robinson. Uh, we believe she was the first black woman in ASCAP, a uh, very successful songwriter. She wrote a song, Let's Have a Party, uh, courted by uh, Elvis, Paul McCartney, very successful. Um, uh, songwriter, um, and as a black woman, you know, in the mid 20th century, producing songs, uh, owning your own catalog like that was very a big deal, you know. So, you know, we're at the point where we're trying to land her, her, her these papers at an institution, and I've been on the other side of that as a professional, you know, bringing collections in, trying to do it in the most ethical way possible. But then now, on the flip side, trying to you know uh, do this as a as, as a person, a uh, family member, um, you realize how, how many obstacles are in place. How do I get an appraiser? We don't, we don't, we don't, we can't afford to fly somebody down. It's very expensive, you know. Um, 
And then there's, you know, there's individuals that are interested in breaking up the collection so that it can be sold on the market. And there's a, there's a financial incentive in that, but you know that it's gonna, I know that it's gonna sell for a lot more than what people are gonna put on the table. So I imagine there's a lot of that kind of thing going on um, where you, know, you have really savvy dealers who are identifying sources of collections and are able to make a good profit off of these trends. So it's, it's, on the one hand, it's a good thing because these are stories that are now being told and how are you gonna tell these stories? Because people that are in positions of power to be able to preserve these histories, collect these histories, document them and make them accessible, uh, now that we have increasing, increasing amount of people of color in these fields, although we're just now making inroads after all these years. You know, it's good that that, that shift is happening. But on the other hand, there's still exploitation on every level. So the question then becomes, how do we diversify our donor base? How do we diversify our vendors? How do we diversify every single sector uh, in, this, in this network of, of um, different uh, sort of industries that create uh, the environment uh, within which these histories can be preserved? Yeah. And, and Jeremy, on, on the collecting side of things, I mean, you've been acquiring materials through, at this point, what must feel like a real roller coaster of uh, market interest. So, I mean, what effect has that had on your own collecting practice as you watch the same material that, uh, again, as you say, as a hipster, maybe 10 years ago when you were starting out, it was right. much easier to acquire. What effect does that have on Well, I haven't, I haven't really had a problem acquiring pieces because I think I look in unconventional places and perhaps I have a bit of insight as a person of color. But what I have noticed, and this is unpopular, is a double standard in the industry as a person of color dealing with household name auction houses, major dealers, and even certain other avenues. So it's worth more when it's somebody that they're accustomed to dealing with, somebody who wants to break up a collection, as opposed to a person of color who has an intimate connection with this, whether it's something that descended in the family or it's something that descended in another family that you're sure could have been your situation or was echoes your situation. And uh, I think what's important now, sorry to jump the gun, is that we have to have transparency and we have to push these institutions to say, wait a minute, we have to appreciate this, not appropriate it, and we have to share this and not sell it, because that's what's happening. They're selling it, and they're making it very interesting uh, narratives, you know, uh, sellable, but those are not necessarily the truth or the true narratives. And what's the point of any of this if we're just going to get this and fashion it in a manner that the powers that be, the same old powers that be, see fit. Y'all could have just let me stay home <laughs> and relax with coffee and eBay. I didn't need to be here. You don't want to hear from me. You just want what I have. Yeah. Well, because there are, you know, as Jesse is talking about, you know, there are multiple sides maybe to this coin. Absolutely. Because, you know, one, one aspect here is that as interest grows, and of course interest and money go hand in hand mm -hmm. in many, if not almost all cases, as interest grows, that also means that there are, in 
at many institutions, there is a preponderance of funding for research, for study, of course, for acquisitions for public institutions, which we'll talk about in a minute. But you know, how do you understand that side of things, where perhaps the material is now able to be investigated in a way that there just weren't the resources? Well, so then we have to look at that, and I think it's important to look at that, and again, this is an unpopular opinion, but we have to look at who's investigating it's, and, and what, what are their instructions when investigating. Be safe with this. Don't be too radical. Now, whether they say that or not, that's what's happening. Uh, and who is doing this investigation? Who's looking into this? And do they have cultural insight to do that? And that may sound elitist at first, but it's not. There's cultural memory. There's things my grandmother told me that your grandmother may or may not have told you. And there's things my grandmother told me without ever telling me. And I think for certain pieces of material culture, especially when we're talking about the African presence in Louisiana, I think I'm a better, and not just me, there's others, there's many allies. I think I would be probably more fit to do a little digging than perhaps somebody who's not acquainted with that culture, whether being of it or just not in it. So I don't want to limit it strictly to people of African descent, but you should have some insight. What's your take on that, Jesse? Um, yeah, no, I agree. Um, and I'm actually, I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing on the ground. I'm sort of excited on a certain level on what's been percolating um, and bubbling up. And that is, the sort of final frontier, in my opinion, that is opening up and diversifying the modalities by which knowledge is produced itself. Um, you know, the traditional model for research in archives and special collections working with, with cultural objects is, is a very sort of settler colonialist enlightenment model where you have the lone genius sort of studying objects in a cabinet of curiosities kind of way to make discoveries, right? And then producing an essay or a monograph uh, upon that very sort of um, individualized, almost uh, private form of research, right? It's very solitary. Uh, and and this, is, this is fostered within the, the environment itself um, which is often very sober um, and quiet, right? And, uh, and so the, the means by, by which knowledge is produced through the engagement with these objects um, within academia, uh, within research libraries, and in some, in some respects, even in public history, um, through, you know, uh, walking through a, a, an exhibition and, and, and interpreting a narrative, right? Um, it, it, it privileges a particular modality that is rooted in, in a Eurocentric perspective, right? But what I'm seeing now is, even in, in, in the more empirical, or let's say, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the STEM fields, the sciences, there's a, an openness to expanding that, that, that the, at least opening themselves to the idea that there are various modalities by which knowledge is produced. And this is radical. I mean, I've already seen pushback in online forums and things like that about like, oh no, you know, the sky's going to fall because science is science and you have to teach it this 
in accordance with the, the scientific method, and that's that's that. Without without acknowledging, you know, the the, the scrutiny that the postmoderns apply to to the sciences, right, and, and and or or historians of science who who have unearthed, you know, scientific racism and all that kind of you know um, <laughs> versions of, of scientific research that have, that have happened, but. At least to me, it seems to me that that's the final frontier, right? And, and this gets back to what you're saying, in that really, when you when you're opening up access, it's one thing to start letting people of color or people from other cultures come in and look at many times their own cultural history, their own objects that have been sealed away almost hermetically and reserved for uh, a certain segment of society that has traditionally been privileged with access to these materials, right? So, you know, when you have professionals collecting this, the, you know, bringing more diversity to their collections, and um, you have sort of a, a critical mass of all these diverse histories now living in, in museums, galleries, and special collections, um, yes, I mean, it makes sense to me that now you're gonna have to open that up not just to researchers of colors, but the researchers of color, but the ways that they do research that may be different, may be uncomfortable, mm -hmm. you know? And so that, that requires rethinking the whole model itself and start reading, rethinking how reading rooms operate. Not to say you have to throw the baby out with backwater and like get rid of the, you know, the old model, but just be open to exploring different ways that we can present these materials or have people engage with these materials that may be sort of counterintuitive to some of the um, concerns around preservation or conservation or some of the concerns around you maintaining a sober, quiet environment. Maybe it's more conversational. Maybe it's more, uh, maybe it's more dialogic in nature and involves uh, investigating um, uh, particular materials as a group, you know? Or, you know, maybe uh, it's, it's, it's engaging through producing other forms of art, you know? So instead of a monograph or an essay or, scholarly presentation. So that's yeah. that's where I'm really excited on. Yeah, that, I mean that's that's really fascinating to me because you know it's uh, we we have a long inherited set of assumptions about the proper context to view the material and to think about the material. And maybe one of the side effects of the last three years is going to be you know to challenge some of those assumptions that frankly have impact beyond just the you know, the racial history and the cultural history, but that speak more broadly to our experience of museums, but also just of, of decorative arts and, and uh, art in general. Um, so there, there, there might be some exciting changes to think about there. But I, I want to pose a hypothetical and sort of come at this from the opposite side for a moment, because, so let's, you know, let, let's imagine, let's say I'm a collector, uh, maybe I'm even, you know, somebody who's on the board of a museum or two. And, you know, I have, for decades, I, I've been, you know, collecting traditional collectible material. Um, that's the world that I've been immersed in. But, you know, I'm now I'm slowly starting to think that there might be this whole other world that I haven't thought much about, that I haven't paid much attention to, um, that I've never really been educated about. Um, and, you know, I'm seeing museum exhibitions that feature black craftspeople. Um, I'm reading 
uh, articles about black artists. Um, I'm thinking more explicitly about the legacy of slavery, colonialism. Uh, these are the you know the historic works that I've traditionally acquired. Um, but you know, I'm not sure how my own collecting should reflect this new paradigm. Um, so, what what advice do you have for somebody in that position? Well, I think anyone who's interested in this, I would welcome you as an ally, and I think that is a wonderful thing because there's enough material culture out there for many more to get involved in. And I think if you go into this as a true collector who's always interested in learning more and gets that funny little feeling when we find something out we didn't know and uh, we find these pieces that kind of reflect and tickle that, I think that's awesome. That's great. Um, my only advice would be yeah, appreciate this, don't appropriate it, and recognize that, you know, I have indigenous ancestry, but I'm not Pueblo. I'm not Navajo. And if I have a question, I'm not going to assume the answer or presume it. I'm going to reach out to someone who has those insights, and I'm going to want to seek and learn from them. And I think that's it. I, I encourage anybody to keep learning. I think that's part of the fun of collecting. We're going to be learning and hopefully, hopefully broadening our collection to some degree, um, if not major, but some degree until we can't collect anymore. So I think it's a good thing. Anything to add to that, Jesse? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm having a difficult time parsing the question a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Um, and because I, I feel like there are layers there. Um, and it, and and it can be a spectrum, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, what you're articulating is is almost like the model by which like the British Library and Museum was built, right? So, and and then they had that rationale of oh, you know, we can preserve these histories better than than the cultures themselves, and and um, and so we have a right to this material, you know, and we're opening it up to scholars uh, internationally, right? And there is some good that can come out of that, but when when uh, you know folks from a certain community want their stuff back, you know you have to take that serious. So then you get into questions of, of, of repatriation on that level, right? But um, uh, as individual collectors who have interest in exploring other identities and other cultures and their history, I mean, you see that all the time. And what I fear is that that sort of tension, right, that we have to balance between, on the one hand, the most extreme cases of you know pillaging through the history of colonialism and then, you know, um, sealing it away. Uh, and on the other hand, somebody who is genuinely interested in the appreciation of a culture outside of their own background and uh, as a collector uses that as a means by which to engage uh, with perspective um, that is, that, that, that they feel that they would benefit and grow as a, as a human being uh, from engaging with um, that can be a good thing, but you know there's there's so much nuance to it, right? And so it's like how do you how do you approach your own collecting? Uh, do you have you know how are you, uh, you know, is are these materials opened up to the people that would be sort of most impacted from being able to um, interact with or or uh, learn from these materials, uh, how are you acquiring them, 
Um, and then, of course, what you say about appropriation, that's so important, you know, especially when you think about indigeneity, which uh, one of the most uh, egregious examples of continual appropriation um, by people outside of, of, of those cultures trying to like, step in and, and uh, bond with an identity in really problematic ways. And then there's also the, you know, the, the risk of fetishizing, right? And that's another risk. You know, where's the line between appreciation and, you know, and the fetishization of a, of, of a culture outside your own background? But I think that as, as, as sort of a, a human family, we grow so much from learning about other cultures. And people are interested, you know, it's, uh, black folks are interested in, in you know, um, Chinese martial arts or, you know, Japanese interested in hip-hop. Hip I mean, there's a lot of cultural exchange going on and it's not all appropriation, you know. That's how kind of like, in my opinion, we evolve, you know, culturally. Um, and so, yeah, it can be very much a good thing. And, um, and in my own experience, you know, I collect, I collect Wida and uh, she's not a person of color. She's a, a British writer, uh, French father lived most of her life in Italy, so very transnational figure. And it just so happened that uh, I love her, her, her fiction. I, I got obsessed with it. And so, you know, I never predicted that, you know, that's, <laughs> I would be a collector of, of Victorian popular fiction, but then here I am. And, it, and to me, it resonates with my, my own personal sort of penchant for, um, for, for what they call uh, street lit or urban lit. You know, and I, it's, it's, it's a guilty pleasure, but I've been reading that for, for many, many years. And, uh, and I, there's a lot of synergy between my, my passion for, for uh, Victorian popular literature and, um, and street lit. So, um, so there's all these like, interesting connections. I can see that happening you know, with other collectors. And you, you don't know what will inspire them to be interested in, in something outside of their own cultural experience. But um, uh, it's, it's not always uh, a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. But so there are a lot of subtle shades um, there's a sort of a spectrum that you have to navigate very carefully, but you know, you, you have to make concrete decisions, certainly as a curator at a museum, and Jeremy, you, you've had plenty of close relationships with and encounters with museums, <laughs> as we've talked about. Yeah, not all of them are uh, enjoyable or pleasurable. Yeah, um, and, and so I'm interested, you know, when it comes to museum collections and acquisitions, you know, at the same time that we're becoming sort of more sensitive to appropriation, cultural appropriation and looting and thinking about repatriation, you know, this is the same moment that many of these museums have a much stronger demonstrated interest in acquiring objects and artwork that tie cultures together, particularly underrepresented cultures, many of which are the same cultures around which we have concerns about appropriation and, and looting. Um, so, you know, when you think about these institutions, many of which, let's face it, have uh, largely white boards of directors and donor bases, um, you know, snapping up pieces, particularly these days of uh, yeah, African-American uh, works of art, um, you know, how, 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 do you, how do you feel about that? How do you, how, how do you think these museums, what, what do they write in, these, in their acquisition strategies? What are they missing? What should they be correcting? Jesse, do you want to start us off with that? Yeah, wow, it's a complicated topic. Um, you know, we have entire committees devoted to thinking this through, right? It's such a complicated topic. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that 
looking at like the fuller picture, you cannot you can't sort of buck the trend, and it's a it's a good thing. You definitely want to embrace um, what's happening in the national conversation around bringing uh, more diverse, inclusive histories uh, into uh, conventional or traditional or canonical collections, right? Um, and there's you know there's a lot of positive outcomes that can, that can uh, result from that, uh, many of which I've, I've, I've touched upon already. But um, but it, it, you're right, it, it becomes really complicated because you have, like I said, endowed funds. And when you have endowed funds, those funds are often restricted. And then that creates the framework that produces your collection strengths. And there's a certain momentum that a collection development policy will build upon from existing or core strengths, all right? So that's one aspect. So then you have to think through the complications of how do you artfully or create, creatively interpret between the lines of some of these stipulations, right? So that you can pull in some of that work. Um, so that's one of the challenges. And then, uh, <laughs> You know, um, once you determine that, um, you have to figure out how to acquire these materials, one, without, comp without sort of stepping on the toes of institutions that already are strong in those areas, right? So you don't want to replicate what, you know, Temple has or what Penn has or, you know, or in our case, what the Schomburg does, right? So there's, there's not really an incentive to try to like create something new. But um, so then you have to figure out, you know, how within your collection strengths, how can you build upon those strengths and be more inclusive about your approach and bring in more diverse histories and from underrepresented backgrounds. Um, so then so all those challenges are all right there, you know? It's, it's so much more than just like, oh, I'm gonna, we're gonna buy more African-American literature, or we're gonna buy more, you know, children's books that, you know, have positive representations of indigenous cultures or something like that, right? You wanna do those things, but there's all these sort of roadblocks and um, obstacles that you have to navigate through. Uh, and then once you figure all that out, you know, uh, you want to make sure that you're dealing with vendors that are dealing in, you know, in ethical practices. Mm -hmm. So then you have to do your research. And there are great book dealers. There are great um, booksellers out there that are really doing hard, difficult work of making their field more inclusive, uh, apprenticing and training a new generation of, of booksellers and, and people that, you know, trafficking rare books to that, that are from diverse backgrounds that you know, that can speak to that history from a personal experience or, you know, and, and, uh, and treat the subject um, as ethically and, and, and with as much sensitivity as, as possible because it's coming from, you know, sort of their cultural experience, right? So those are some of the, the primary challenges that one has to encounter when they want to embark on that enterprise. Mm -hmm. Anything you'd like to add to that, Jeremy? No, to you start handle this from again from the opposite side of things. <laughs> well, to start on a positive, there's progress. Look, I'm talking right now. 
in New York. I flew down from New Orleans. It was a pleasant flight, thank you for asking. Um, and we're having these conversations with need, you know, that very much need to be had. And we do see reflections of change, and that's wonderful. And, in, and what he just described would be the ideal way to do this. Fortunately, there's some museums just that got out their pocketbook and are throwing so much money at this, and they don't even know what they're throwing it at. And, you know, I look forward to the day, two to five years, when they're scratching their head and they say, we really shouldn't have bought piece number one, 26, 37, and 421. What are we going to do? And I, I hope to God somebody, a collector, possibly of color, will say, well, I know what to do with these pieces and also can assist you with the pieces you should have bought. And we can strengthen the museum by narrative. It matters. It oh, yeah. matters. I'm, I, you know, so often we see a piece sell at auction and there's this fantastical write-up about it. And you're scratching your head like, what are they talking about? Who wrote this? Who wrote this? Did they not see this movie? I won't quote the movie, Cinderella. Or, 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 or the uh, read the story. Did you not read it? It's not about sisterly love. What are you talking about? Yeah, I said it there. It's there. Um, and, uh, and you wonder, y'all didn't call anybody of color about this. You just threw the money, the bank wire, and that was it. You got the piece, but you didn't get it. So that's the negative. And uh, sorry to be a downer, y'all, with the rain. And the, it's just a downer. But I, I'm going to be truthful because I think we have to speak truth. Because otherwise, I should have been staying at home drinking coffee on the eBay. <laughs> right? That's it. If you know, I can't speak truth. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. And, and just to follow up on that, I think, you know, uh, it's really, really important. And, and, and sort of, it's, it's imperative museums to be very, very strategic about what the narrative is around their acquisitions and how they were going to make those accessible um, in a curatorial capacity or otherwise, right? Um, because you can, if you do that properly and it's the right fit, uh, magical things can happen. Right, and then you have the platform to tell the best story in the best way possible. But when it's the wrong fit, uh, it's a it could be a disaster. It could be a public relations disaster. Um, and you know, we've we've all seen stories in the news where this happens. You know, where something goes completely right and something goes completely wrong. And it's really really hard to get it right, um, and kind of easy to get it wrong. So you know. Uh, yeah, it definitely deserves a lot of attention, and that's why I think responsible organizations will have this work done in committees and will reach out even to outside experts, perhaps create advisory boards um, when exhibitions are involved or um, when it's a potential acquisition of a, of a major figure or, a ma or, or an important group that would be perhaps you know, better suited for a, a different institution or a community organization or something like that. Uh, to get all the input that's necessary in making really, really impactful decisions. Yeah, so you, we've been talking about the acquisition of underrepresented groups. But of course, museums are still full of not only material, but also curators um, who work in these more traditional areas. And, and 
you know, I've heard in some quarters uh, curators complaining that it's impossible to raise acquisition funds for anything in these traditional areas because it's been completely eclipsed by the sort of feeding frenzy around these uh, largely underrepresented areas. Um, what do you think the future looks like or, or ought to look like for uh, specialists in 18th century French furniture, just to take an example? Well, I mean, I think things balance out, okay? That doesn't mean there's not going to be, I don't want to, you know, talk about the trajectories. This is just a fad, because this is never going to be a fad for me and many people. And I'm not interested, again, in, in discussing that. What I will say is we have, the world has a strange way of balancing out. So if these things are now included, then maybe there'll be kind of an even distribution where we can look at a great 18th century chair or portrait by Gobert or something and not say, oh, but you really should have bought that painting of the person of color. You know, because I think it'll balance out. Um, but right now is the moment for this, right? We're talking about what, what's happening. And, uh, for those who feel a little lost or in the wilderness, welcome to my world. It'll get better soon, just hold your breath. Um, and it, it, everything will be fine, I think. There's optimism after so much negativity yeah, from it. Yeah, it'll, it'll balance out, but right now, just ride the wave. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, we don't have that problem with Morgan. That's not an issue, yeah. you know? We still have, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our funds are devoted to collecting canonical figures and traditional, conventional, Euro-American, European history. Mm -hmm. But, 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 here's this, this huge uh, point that I want to make in dealing with canonicity. That does not preclude, in my opinion, engagement with diverse histories. And that's why I'm so excited to be at the Morgan and have this platform, right? Because I think we kind of fall into this, this way of thinking, this assumption that, oh, this is a canonical figure, right? Um, uh, Shakespeare, Poe, Longfellow, and they only had only, you know, we imagine white readership, that's it, you know? As if nobody in the world, else in the world, was interested in that history. But it turns out uh, people from all the world are also interested in, in, in European and Euro-American canonical figures too. So um, there's a lot of stories there. You know, I did one of my recent research projects uh, for work that I'm, um, I'm currently invested in is I was looking at the question of like, how popular was Lita among black Americans of the 19th century, mm. right? And I was surprised to find lots and lots of articles in black periodicals about, about Lita uh, advertisements for her books, uh, you know, all the stories that circulated about, you know, how much money she made and, you know, where she traveled and the controversies that she was in. You know, they were paying attention. So then I looked at, you know, Dickens and Wilde and I compared that to, you know, uh, Francis Harper and Dunbar and they were comparable, you know. So, um, you know, all throughout history and up until the current moment, you know, you're going to find people of color invested in um, canonical works, and there are ways to get at diverse stories within the histories of these figures, and you start looking you know, closely at their own biographies, and you find all these intersections with, with uh, multicultural narratives, right? Think of Beethoven and Bridge Tower, you know? I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah. So, 
so, you know, I think I would challenge us to get outside the mind frame of, like, okay, let's check the, these diversity boxes, you know, okay, we did the East Asian, and now we're doing, you know, uh, Aboriginal, and now we're doing, um, you know, Native American, and start thinking more of, more about the connectivity of the human story. Think of America, I think of America as this sort of diverse uh, cultural um, uh, sort of quilts all interwoven together with all these stories beautifully uh, and sort of um, interestingly and, and, and poignantly intertwined, right? And, and when you pull that one thread, it's gonna tug at another. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is one of my favorite subjects, you know, as a silver dealer, we are engaged in thinking about global trade um, at just about every moment in, uh, in history because you think of the sources of the raw materials, but you also think of the design sources that these silversmiths and their designers are, are drawing from. And it's all about communication really across, across the globe in a period when uh, the globe is becoming more interconnected. Um, so, yeah, to, to think of it in within a single box is really limiting from the, um, the connoisseurial perspective as well as you know, from the historical perspective. Um, and, and I'm interested in uh, actually staying on that subject for a moment because, um, you, you know, for centuries Europeans have gone to uh, tremendous lengths to acquire uh, you know, Chinese porcelain and, and African carvings and you know, and, and Chinese merchants were lusting after Venetian glass. Um, and, and, you know, in Europe and America, this, uh, this interest came to be known as, as exoticism. Um, but these days, you know, that term is seen as um, sort of like, you know, Orientalism. We understand that to be a sort of pejorative and diminutive way to think about, uh, about material culture. Um, and there's also, you know, there's a difference between objects of global fascination versus objects that uh, speak to a history of oppression, you know, here, here at home. Um, but still, you know, it seems like it ought to be possible to collect outside the lines, if you will, um, to, you know, come at it from a place, as, as you were talking about earlier, from a place of respect and, you know, fascination with... Uh, and other people or, or culture rather than fetishizing or, or otherizing them. Um, and I wonder if you have any specific advice or concrete advice for, um, uh, for how to situate, situate yourself in a, a sensible way on that question. Take Who's it away here. Me? Oh, um, I would say just do due diligence. And um, I, I would also say, and it's fine if you change your mind, but pick an area of focus. What am, I, what am I looking to collect? Can we talk about why I'm looking to collect this? And I think you should create this outline, and I think if you stick by this outline, and I hate to limit a collector, but sometimes we all have to limit our collections, and if you stick by these guidelines and you stay, well, this is why I'm collecting this, I think that goes a long way, and it keeps you in check. Okay, and not, it doesn't limit you. I think it actually allows you to search for a broader um, spectrum of within that. But I think you have to have some limitations as a collector, otherwise you're all over 
and you're squandering not just money, but also, more importantly, time and attention. So I would say, observe and find what you want to somewhat focus on, or maybe not focus, but narrow in on. And I think that would be the best. That, I wish I could told myself this about 10 years ago. <laughs> Right. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that approach. Um, and yeah, I would just echo your sentiments in, in that regard. Uh, but I would add, you know, in, in thinking through that, that, that really essential question of, of the why am I doing this, pay attention to the answer, right? Um, and if there's something that you would not feel comfortable in the answer to that, uh, expressing or communicating to uh, the people from which these objects originated, then you need to go back to the drawing board, right? But I do think there's a, you know, sort of a vast gulf between collecting, you know, something like, you know, the decorative arts porcelain, or, you know, you, you have uh, nice, uh, China and, and a tea set, right? Um, and you like the aesthetic, then you know, sort of collecting, um, say, Ethiopic manuscripts, right? Because um, you see them as a standard symbol. Uh, and there's a there's a there's a gulf because you know one deals with a sort of sacred literature and there's a religiosity behind those objects. So in in that case, you know, you have to recognize the nuance in it. And ask yourself, okay, is this appropriate? Not to say that it's never appropriate to, to acquire works like that, but just really kind of think it through. And I'm, I'm, I have this example in my mind of a collector who, at, for, for a long period of time, uh, poured a lot of energy and resources into building a collection of Jim Crow era postcards. Right? These things were hideous, racist, offensive. And it's a comprehensive collection, right? And it came to the University of Delaware. Right? Now, one of my first, when I, when I was teaching in the English department there, one of my first projects was to build a course around these like horrible postcards, mm. right? Uh, and I had to come up with a way to teach with them responsibly. But what I found out is that the reason, that, the very reason why they were trying to find a way to design a class around this, this collection, was because that was that was stipulated by the collector upon donating the collection to to the um, to the to the institution, and I had I called them up directly and I said, "What's the deal behind this?" You know, like I wanted to get a sense, I wanted to really understand, and he told me a story about when he was at the university. It was still there was it was still pretty much segregated along the main street, and black folks couldn't go in the in the restaurants. Uh, right at the university, right? And uh, this kind of like really opened his eyes to the injustice of it. And when he encountered these postcards, he saw that this was telling a story, the quotidian racism that was uh, part of the, the, the sort of American cultural landscape. Um, and he felt that a collection of this nature would document that history, and so it should be taught with. There should be a way that we can responsibly educate students who were not aware of this aspect of material culture and society 
And, you know, I said it was as challenging and as painful it was to devise a course around that. Um, I took on the challenge, right? And so in that case, you have a collector who on the surface you would think, oh, this is terrible, you know, they must be like really into fetishizing the racist history of America or maybe themselves find these caricatures entertaining or wants to promote the narratives that these caricatures are um, proliferating. But when I was able to tap into the rationale behind what went into building that collection, it made sense. And the course was very effective. We had really, really, really hard, challenging conversations among the students. You know, it got emotional. And the way that I was able to responsibly handle these materials is that we all did a whole bunch of background reading into the history of blackface, uh, race, negative racial stereotypes, caricature, um, before we even looked at the objects, right? So we had that grounding, right? Uh, engaged with works like Spike Lee's Bamboozled and all that. So by the time that we encountered the objects, we were able to have real like, adult conversations about what we were seeing that was grounded in, in generations of scholarship that went into understanding and unpacking how this came to be. Um, and, uh, and I'm glad for it. I'm, I'm, and so I was grateful in this circumstance that this collection was produced uh, as, as egregious as, as the images that I encountered uh, came off to me. And, um, and so it always comes to that question of the why. Yeah. That's all for now. Thanks so much to The Winter Show for hosting this event, and to Jesse Erickson and Jeremy Simeon for sharing your insight with us. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati with social media and web support from Sarah Bellata. Sierra Holt is our digital media and editorial associate. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller.